Every month, food banks here in B.C. help more than 80,000 individuals, and one in every three of those is a child. Many people don't realize that it could be their neighbor or co-worker who needs help from a food bank in B.C. Why? Well, because there's no typical person that turns to a food bank for help. That messaging from foodbankbc.com as we take a look at uh, the food bank situation around Metro Vancouver and across our province. It's a pleasure to welcome Cynthia Bolter back to the program. Cynthia is the Chief Operating Officer of the Vancouver Food Bank. Good morning, Cynthia. Good morning. It's good to have you back with us. Thanks for getting up early. We appreciate it very much. Uh, before we start, zoom in on the Vancouver Food Banks and take a look at our local predicament, I'd like your comments on the following. And, and just close your eyes and go with me on this because you've seen this on television. You, you, you start with a shot of a group of cars lined up with volunteers uh, putting bags of food or boxes of food into the trunks of cars. The trunk closes, another car pulls up, the worker turns around and does the same to the next trunk. As this is happening, the helicopter starts to pull back from the shot of where the workers are loading food into trunks, and you realize that this procession of cars, which is lining up for the local food bank somewhere in the United States, the lineup of cars, Cynthia, actually extends for miles. It's absolutely breathtaking how many people in whatever given city that happens to be find themselves in need of a food bank during COVID-19. Have those numbers in some measure been reflected here in Metro Vancouver? Not yet. So when we talk to the larger food banks uh, across Canada, there's a, a prevailing experience that while we are seeing some record numbers of new client signups, uh, we have not seen numbers skyrocket overall yet. And the belief is that this is because people uh, still have access to some of the funding from the federal government, right, okay. for, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and that is helping people out. We believe, or we think, because we don't know for sure, but we think that the real peak of demand will come in the three to six month time frame from now. I think some smaller towns have been hit harder, but I think the larger cities uh, seem to be largely in the same position. So we, we aren't seeing ourselves in uh, the situation that you described yet, but I think the concern is uh, when people don't have full-time jobs to go back to or a job to go back to and or when the funding runs out, what does it look like then? Exactly. And a very good point, too, because the feds are already having to struggle with this, Cynthia. This whole notion of the CERB and other emergency programs were designed to be very short term. I believe the CERB is four months, four payments of $2,000. Uh, I, I think that was the original program or close to it. And uh, you're right. When that runs out, if the job market hasn't opened up to the point where most of those recipients of federal funding can find work, then there's going to be a big gap. Whether it gets refilled by the feds with more funding remains very much to be seen, doesn't it? It does. Uh, And I mean, we are already seeing the effects of the job loss. About 80% of the new client signups since end of March, beginning of April, um, have told us that it is um, COVID-19 related job loss uh, behind that. You know, that's the reason that they are coming to see us. Is that uh, also, though, is there a corresponding uh, increase because there are more people who are economically dispossessed and uh, finding themselves in rather dire straits uh, coming to the food bank for food? uh, Does it also follow that, Cynthia, there are more people with time on their hands who are looking to make useful, uh, make use of that time in a community contributory way and are stepping up to volunteer? Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, it does. And we have seen an influx of new volunteers. In mid-March, we put out a call to our communities across Greater Vancouver and, and asked for some funding to see us through this, uh, some grocery bags to help us bag the food to make sure that people can get in and out quickly and for volunteers. And uh, the response has been tremendous. Uh, we have seen many new client signups and 
and they're loving it. The quality of food that we are able to give out with what we purchase and our industry donations is really strong, and there is um, a large fresh food component to that. So whether they are sorting food in our warehouse or um, handing out food at one of our distribution centers, uh, they're, they're loving the experience. We don't have as many different types of volunteer activities right now because our events have been cancelled sure, and we don't have as many people in the office. But, uh, but that kind of frontline food-related volunteer experience is, uh, is quite popular right now. And I imagine tremendously satisfying for those people who find the time to uh, contribute in that way. And you did mention fresh food. We're lucky, aren't we, Cynthia, that this uh, we're coming in now into June. Uh, we're coming into a, the time of year when a lot of our local food needs can be met, uh, right? Our fresh food needs rather can be met locally right here in our own backyard what's the donation level in terms of of fresh produce uh, these days well more than half of the food we have in our warehouse is fresh and that includes fruits and vegetables but we also uh, receive large donations uh, from some of our retail partners right. like Loblaws and Costco um, and a lot of that food uh, has not even seen the shelf yet in grocery stores. Some of it comes to us after, but some of it comes to us before it's even seen a shelf. And so we have meats and uh, dairy, so cheeses and milks and yogurts. Um, so lots of great proteins. It's not just uh, the fruits and the vegetables that we include in that fresh category. But you're right, we're coming to the summer where we buy direct from farmers. This is why we really encourage people to um, to donate money versus right. food because what we can do with a dollar when we are buying cherries and uh, pears and apples um, and nectarines right from a farmer uh, is so much more than you or I could do in the grocery store. Our pleasure to welcome Cynthia Bolter back to the program. Cynthia is the CEO of the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. And Cynthia, this is right on the front page of your website, foodbankbc.ca. And I, I, we do need to do this in this in these times of, of COVID-19, isolation and scams. It says right here, the Greater Vancouver Food Bank does not solicit donations door to door. If you are approached by someone claiming to represent the food bank, do not give them a donation of any kind. Please note as many details about that individual as you're able to and then call the non-emergency number of your local police department. Again, nobody goes door-to-door soliciting dough for the food bank, but people are trying it. The bad guys, the scam artists are at play during this COVID-19 times. And uh, Cynthia, it's regrettable, but it's very important that we get this word out on the airwaves, don't you think? Yeah, that's a great opportunity to do that. And we, we see this pop up every now and then, um, and it has popped up in the last few months um, on the North Shore, seemingly, in particular. But, uh, yeah, we do not uh, solicit door-to-door, and, uh, and that isn't us if anyone comes to the door. And particularly someone doing that in the middle of the pandemic yeah. uh, is, uh, is alarming. And I will just um, note that although um, I work closely with our CEO, I am the chief operating officer. I don't have the top job. That's our CEO, David Long. But, uh, but we work closely together. Uh-huh. Okay. Sorry. An unnecessary promotion, perhaps, early in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can dream now, can't you, Cynthia? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about volunteering, because we started there and uh, had to take a break. And, and you're very pleased that uh, in recent times, again, with people finding themselves with more than, an, more than enough time on their hands, some people have decided to turn that um, uh, idle time into productive time and to give back to their community in the process. And yet you were starting to describe some of the details regarding work that volunteers can do. And of course, at a food bank, typically we think of, you know, the people in the front who uh, put, put, put the stuff into the bags and then pass the bags on to the individuals. Uh, but there are other jobs, and you talked about warehouse activities, among others. Yes, we normally have 75 volunteers in the warehouse each day, three groups of 25. When this health crisis hit, we really had to scale back, and we went down to two groups of 10. So we are just increasing that now to uh, two groups of 15, 
and it seems to be going well, uh, and we will continue to hopefully be able to increase that. We have a couple of different kinds of sort activities in the warehouse, fresh food and uh, non-perishable food. We have to sort through and uh, weed out any damaged food, torn packages, and anything that is too far past its best before date that uh, it is no longer safe or nutritious to eat. And then we also have... um, some opportunities in the warehouse to prepare some specific nutritional supplements. We uh, provide families with extra food for babies up to two and then for children between two and five and now for children between six and 12. And volunteers always love those opportunities as well. I'll bet indeed. Now, you talked earlier also about uh, getting a big bang for the buck, which is why you always prefer to receive cash donations if possible from individuals because you're able to turn that $1 into 3 to $5 worth of purchasing power that the likes of uh, regular folks going to the supermarket couldn't possibly enjoy. Wanted to ask you, though, in terms of volunteers, when you buy from a farmer, as you said you do, especially at this time of year, you head out to the to the valley and buy a truckload of uh, lettuce or whatever, does that farmer deliver the goods to you or do your people pick it up out at the farm? It's a bit of a combination. A lot of them uh, deliver and uh, many of them have shipments coming into the city and our produce that we purchase from them can be a part of that shipment. Okay. So, again, I'm just thinking in terms of volunteer activities that individuals can get up to. And, of course, you also talked, and quite necessarily, about how um, the, the, our new normal, uh, this, this, the living with COVID-19, has caused pretty much every activity and business to pivot to one degree or another. And you began, you began that process by reducing your, your teams from 25 down to 10. You're starting to boost them back up. Uh, and uh, I guess just as we get to phase three, probably in another couple of weeks, Cynthia, that may include greater members of, of, of each of those three teams too, right? We hope so. Uh, we really do. And we are posting all of our procedures that we take to keep people safe and keep all of our equipment and surfaces and warehouse clean uh, in the warehouse at all of our food distribution locations because we want volunteers to feel safe about coming to see us. Sure. And we believe they do. Um, so, yes, our hope is that we can continue to increase um, the number of volunteers in the warehouse and Uh, We experienced the closure of the locations where we used to distribute food, um, smaller community centers and neighborhood houses. So we have, as you say, pivoted. And we're now in five locations across the four cities that the Greater Vancouver Food Bank um, supports, uh, distributing food uh, for longer periods of time. Uh, We in really physically distant uh, ways, which is great. It keeps clients and staff and uh, volunteers safe. And, you know, we always have some new opportunities. We've just, um, we've had some great offers from uh, companies like Kia to loan us some cars. Yes. And other food yeah, banks. Yeah, they lent you a van, didn't they? Yeah. Days. yeah. So we have a few cars from them. And then uh, Toyota uh, Canada and a bunch of dealerships locally did a large amount of fundraising for us. Um, and they've come through with uh, a van for us. Um, they were totally responsive to that. So we can help to shuttle people uh, back and forth from our main warehouse location after uh, food distribution or around food distribution, just a couple blocks up to the uh, production way SkyTrain. So we're going to try that for a while. So that'll be a new volunteer opportunity that we haven't been able to do before. Now, if someone listening to us right now over their morning coffee decides, you know, maybe I, maybe I should give it a shot. What, uh, what are the criteria? What sort, of, uh, what sort of vetting process? Where does one go to join up as a volunteer with the food bank, Cynthia? The website's the best place, and that's foodbank.bc.ca, and we have a volunteer opportunity right at the top, and you can sign up as a group, which we don't see really as much of anymore, um, or as an individual, uh, and that goes to our volunteer coordinator, um, and we go through types of activities that people like to do, what opportunities do we have, Um, we uh, do a criminal record check um, on volunteers, normally we do an orientation in our um, warehouse Mm -hmm. for all new volunteers coming in, but because we don't 
want to have large groups of people together, um, people are just getting oriented on site when they start their first shift. Okay, so foodbank.bc.ca is where you go, uh, and there's a form you can fill out, and and you can connect with Cynthia and the the gang at the Greater Vancouver Food Banks Mm -hmm. and get yourself plugged into a very worthwhile effort. Cynthia Bolter, the COO of the Greater (laughs) Vancouver Food Bank, Uh, a pleasure to have you back on the show, Cynthia. It's always a treat, and we just uh, salute you and your team for the incredibly good job you're doing here in Vancouver. Thanks again. Thank you. Take care, Sterling. It is uh, time to bring back Jennifer McCracken by popular demand, To I hasten to add. Jennifer is a senior manager and licensed insolvency trustee with BDO First Call Debt Solutions here in Vancouver. Jennifer, welcome back. Always a pleasure to have you on the program. Good morning, Sterling. Good morning to you. And you people have been uh, t- crunching the numbers because the Office of the Superintendent of Bankruptcy, which is uh, something insolvency trustees pay a lot of attention to, has just uh, released a new batch of numbers. And I suppose, somewhat surprisingly, because you and I have talked about this in the past, Jennifer, uh, insolvency filings during the month of April were actually down. Did that surprise you? It did. It was a surprising finding uh, in the figures there, Sterling. And it, for a lot of us, just because we know Canadians have high levels of debt, uh, we know that there's been over eight million applications for the CERB benefit, yes. mm-hmm. um, and, and we know that um, you know Canadians have have been sort of thinking through what they're going to do to deal with their debt. So we would have expected at this time that we would have maybe seen some people taking more drastic steps, considering some filings either for bankruptcy or consumer proposal. But we found the numbers on average across the country went down by nearly 40%. So it's just, it's a bit of a curious finding. We, we would have really predicted at this point that uh, we thought those numbers were going to go up. Exactly. Now, what did BC do? How did we stack up versus the rest of the country, Jennifer? In BC, on average, the filings were down. It was just under 30%. So where we saw a bigger decrease, if you actually break it down between bankruptcies and proposals, we saw that the bankruptcy filings went down by close to 40%, and there was a smaller drop in the proposals. Oh, okay. Uh, before we get too fur- much further into the into the discussion, can we differentiate right up front uh, the difference mm-hmm. uh, between a consumer proposal, Jennifer, and a total bankruptcy? One being the lesser of two evils, I suspect, but mm-hmm. both both are quite legitimate remedies for Canadians in trouble. Yes, no, no problem. So in terms of uh, your options, if you've gone to a bank, you haven't been able to get a consolidation loan, and you realize that there's a more drastic step needed, um, individuals can consider doing a consumer proposal filing, which really is a settlement on the debt where they'll pay back a portion of the debt, typically over five years. And then a bankruptcy filing is the option of last resort where a proposal may not be a viable process, mm-hmm. and an individual will go through a bankruptcy, which is a legislative process to get a discharge of your debt. Okay, and, uh, and and we'll come back to those two possibilities as we go forward. But really, the fact that uh, while people in professional positions like yours, insolvency trustees across the nation, were actually given the reality of Canadian personal debt levels, you were expecting the numbers to go up. They didn't. So is this the calm before the storm, Jennifer, or has something dramatically happened? Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Sterling. That is the thought, that it is the calm before the storm. And think through, for a lot of individuals, at least people that I meet before they file, typically they're in a bit of a collection loop with their creditors. So they're getting daily phone calls, they're getting emails. Um, it's an extraordinary amount of pressure, mm-hmm. and it's very, very stressful to be receiving collection calls on a daily basis. And they're not always the most pleasant phone calls, as you can imagine. Yeah. So because a lot of people have been, uh, and certainly we're encouraged people to work with the banks, tell them what's going on. A lot of banks, most of the institutions are agreeing to have deferrals in place. So they're giving people time to make those uh, payments. And so the thought really is that because that pressure is off right now, uh, we don't have the banks collecting as strongly as maybe they previously would be. Uh, So we're seeing that people are really just focusing on the necessities, focusing on making ends meet. If there's folks out there receiving the benefits, provincial or federal, they're really using that money right now to cover their base 
basic living expenses sure. and we're not focusing on the debt payment right now. And it's kind of um, sort of just putting it aside until those deferrals run out. We would expect that people are going to have to start focusing on what they're going to do to resolve the debt. This may seem like a silly question, Jennifer McCracken, but if you are a person uh, eligible to be uh, in line for one of those deferrals by your bank, whereby they will set aside your obligations, your mortgage payments, for example, for up to six months, realizing that, of course, the interest is not going to go away, that the six months will simply be added to the term. Uh, You're not getting away with anything, but it's important. And this sounds silly, Jen, but it's it's important. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have to let your bank know that you indeed want to take the deferral. You just can't stop making payments and assume, oh, they'll understand. You actually have to talk to them about it, don't you? You do, and we. I always encourage communication because at the end of the day, um, you know, the bank has lent the money. You've, you've signed a contract to pay it, so you do have that responsibility to get in touch with the lender and let them know what's going on. And you know, a bank will be flexible with you if you're going to keep those lines of communication open. Obviously, we know this is an unprecedented event in Canada. Yeah, yeah. We know that millions of people have been affected. So, at a minimum, give them updates if you you want to do it um, every month, or you want to get in talk to them about how frequently they want updates on your situation. If you're looking for work, keep that open. And you may find also you're able to maintain a strong credit rating. Now, if the bank's going to agree to a deferral, you can talk to them about the fact, okay, I'm going to request that you not put any notations on my credit report. I may want to get a loan after everything has settled and consolidate my debt. try, Try to capitalize on that good, strong credit rating and that good relationship. And the bank will work with you. Putting your head in the sand and ignoring the bank and saying, oh, well, everyone else got deferrals, so I don't really need to make this call. That's definitely not the approach that we would be encouraging people to do at yeah, this time. It's not an automatic by any stretch, is it? No, it isn't. And why would it be, right? Because a lot of Canadians haven't been impacted in, in terms of their, their work. They're sure. still working. They're still generating an income. So in that situation, of course, the bank, you're, there's an expectation you're going to honor your obligations and make your minimum payments. Okay, so let's talk about uh, this whole notion of becoming organized. Because as you say, look, if you're in a position right now where you've, you've, let's say you've requested that deferral from your bank and they've agreed, given the fact that your cash flow is darn near minimum and you're among many millions of Canadians currently reliant upon one of those or perhaps more than one of the federal uh, benefits like the CERB. Uh, So as you try, and as you said, uh, quite accurately, earlier, if you're in, in that predicament, then every penny that comes into your account is already spent. You've got household obligations, you've got food and, and important items like that to take. There's no setting aside money. For example, this is taxable. Some of this money is taxable, Jennifer, uh, from the federal, these benefits. Mm-hmm. Uh, people aren't going to be able to set aside $400 out of a $2,000 check knowing that that's the likely tax hit they're going to take. They need every penny of that, don't they? They do, and and so we are encouraging folks to uh, reduce their expenses as much as possible. And, and for a lot of people, they probably can solidly say that their expenses have gone down. If they don't have a childcare expense, maybe they're not driving their car as much. Their gas has gone down. They may have contacted ICBC to decrease the cost of their insurance. You know, do all of those things that you can. Even consider canceling unnecessary things like cable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just go without for a period of time. So we're definitely encouraging folks to really take stock um, if there is a concern about having money available to pay taxes. Of course, if, if that would be encourage folks to set that money aside, if at all possible. We also want folks to look at whether or not they have any savings, uh, take stock of their debt situation, get those deferrals. And there may be enough to sort of bridge the gap until, in, basically until the deferrals run out and until potentially the funding runs out. And, um, and then there's going to have to be an assessment of what people are going to do. Just say come the fall. Sure. I think we're going to see a bit of a change. Yeah, we'll talk a little more about some of the uh, practical solutions, the organizational tips that you have. But just before we go to break here, Jennifer, you talked about credit rating. If I have received permission from my bank to defer my mortgage for, shall we say, six months, I believe that's the, uh, the term, uh, because I'm not making payments by agreement over the next six months, will my credit rating go down anyway because the payments haven't been made? 
It should not, and I would encourage folks to actually confirm that with their lender because some of the credit reporting is actually more automated. Like you do actually, you can go directly to the bureau and resolve any dispute, but you would want to ensure that you talk to the bank and have communication with them about how they intend to report those payments to your credit report. The other thing uh, to keep in mind, the listener should know that I've never seen this before in my career, but we've seen that you can get access to both your TransUnion and Equifax report for free online. So it's part of COVID-19. They've offered that. So take advantage of that now. It's for some folks that aren't working. You do have the time to fix these things. So get the copy of those reports. Any dispute that you have or any inaccuracy, you can work directly with TransUnion or Equifax and get those things resolved. And, and if there is a way to, as I say, maintain that strong credit rating, um, you're going to get the benefit of that when you have those conversations and discussions with the bank after everything has settled and, and we sort of get back to business, so to speak. As just a rule of thumb, uh, how frequently should any person check his or her credit uh, rating? Once a year? Once every six months? How often, Jennifer? You can do it for free once a year by mail. I mean, obviously, I've just said there's this COVID-19 um, situation where you're getting it for free online. But typically, you know, once that goes away, you can get it for free once a year by mail. And so I definitely, at a minimum, encourage folks to do that. There's also some memberships and um, you can sign up through their websites to have more increased access to their credit report. So some folks may want to do it more regularly. It won't impact your credit rating regardless. So whether you do it every three months or every six months or once a year, checking your credit and reviewing your report as a consumer it's your own personal privileged file. It won't bring your credit rating down. So for some of that, it's going to depend on why you're checking it um, and uh, really what financial products you have sort of in your name. And, and you could find that there's a need to do it more than once a year, just depending on your situation. Jennifer was talking about the tipping point and identified the fall, September, as the likely tipping point for many Canadians because that's when many of these benefit programs that are being offered by Ottawa will expire. So, Jennifer, now it comes to the practical stuff. What measures should people be taking now to prepare so they can better manage when that tipping point comes? Some tips and advice, perhaps, this morning, if you would, please. Yes, uh, no problem. So in terms of um, recommendations, obviously assess right now what amount you have in savings because if presumably for a lot of folks their income has gone down, a lot of our expenses in our budget remain pretty consistent. Yep. We have a, a certain level of fixed expenses. So you've got to find a way to bridge that gap if there's been a reduction in income. So that's the first step is assess what's available for savings. Uh, we do encourage individuals to assess where they can trim their expenses and cut back. It's really imperative that you do so. So find a way to reduce the, you know, the cable, the telephone bills, insurance. Um, those ones can really, they really start to add up when you, when you go through your budget and, and obvious steps in terms of discretionary spending. So things like eating out, uh, reducing your food expenditures, all those things are going to really make a difference when the money's tight right now. And then in terms of your debt situation, most Canadians have some form of debt. So uh, again, assessing what amount is owed, what is the interest rate on each of the accounts, are we able to get deferrals from any of the banks, have that communication with the lenders, and also they'll have a plan, really assess as you're going, um, take stock of, okay, where do we expect to be if you build out a three-month plan? Where do we expect to be in three months? And, and you're going to have to find a way to sort of to cover off those expenses and also figure out what you're going to do in respect of your debt. Yeah, and a lot of people, of course, Jennifer, uh, particularly those with, um, and you're quite right to point out, or as you did earlier, that is some of the population is almost unaffected by COVID-19. They work in essential occupations, for example, and their their cash flow has been basically uninterrupted. Uh, however, there is a, a significant percentage of the population that that doesn't apply to. Uh, and so if, you're, if your income has been reduced and you're looking to plan and you're trying to manage on whatever uh, benefit programs you're able to take advantage of, you and I both know, Jennifer, that a lot of people are subsidizing those benefits from Ottawa with Visa and MasterCard to buy the groceries or pay the phone bill or whatever. And it doesn't take long for that to start to add up. No, that's such a good point, Sterling. And um, anybody that is is having to go into debt to bridge the gap, we are encouraging you to access 
uh, the debt on accounts that have lower interest rates. So if you have, for instance, a line of credit, it would be more wise to go in debt on that account as opposed to something like a high interest rate credit card and really have a plan to pay that back. So as you build out that three-month budget, um, assess you know what is the amount we expect to incur in new debt and what is our plan to pay that back. Right. So there really does need to be um, it's sort of a measured approach to the situation. I think, and also perhaps even keeping track. I mean, it's pretty easy to, to tap for what about, just about whatever you want these days. And it's also pretty easy to forget that, oh, I tapped for that earlier and so on. So uh, kind of riding herd on yourself and your expenditures or your, your expenses and where you're spending money is also a critical part of it all, isn't it? It is. It's, you know, it's so important to have that plan and to really, you know, and if you are, as you say, going to go in debt, you really want to track. Do we anticipate we're going to incur a further $2,000 of debt? Could it be, you know, if, if you have high expenses, it could be as high as $5,000. So what is the plan to remedy that? And also assess where you're at, what um, where you're at in terms of the limits, right? So you could have a credit card where there's really only available credit of a further $1,000. And so if you know that you need really need access to credit for an amount higher than that, what is the plan? I mean, we're not encouraging people to incur debt, obviously, but the reality is for a lot of folks, there may not be much of an alternative if they have expenses and that are high in their income and, and what they've qualified for is just not enough to pay the bills. At the end of the day, you do need to put a roof over your head. Yep. So um, there also does need to, you do need to take stock of, you know, where am I at? What are the limits on these accounts and, and what credit's available? And if I am going to go into debt, what is the plan to pay it back? And um, there is going to be a point where you, you just don't have access to further credit. So what's the plan then? Exactly. So when is a good time to sit down recognizing already life is kind of on the bubble and it's not going to get any better for the foreseeable short term? I'm starting to feel that I'm losing things here. So when is a good time to sit down with a pro like yourself? Do you have to be almost bankrupt to give a trustee a call and get a bit of a fix on where you stand? No, and that, that's what something that's so important for individuals to understand is that a licensed insolvency trustee is, I'm obligated under my federal license to review all options that are available. So when I meet individuals that don't need a proposal or bankruptcy, maybe they can work with their lender, get a consolidation loan. We, I meet a lot of folks actually that have equity in their real estate that would be enough to pay their debts back. So uh-huh. we, will, we will advise you, I'm obligated to tell you that you really, you don't need me right now, so it's a good news day. Right. Why don't you go back and talk to your bank and we'll give you tips on, okay, this is is what I suggest you do before you go to your bank, and we'll walk you through that um, option. And also meet people that they don't even need to get a consolidation loan. They actually can just work through a plan to pay down their debt absent any kind of formal filing or new loan. So we definitely encourage you to reach out now and get a sense of what your options are, because it's not just doom and gloom. We may find that you have options that don't require something formal like a bankruptcy or proposal. Now, if you do need a bankruptcy or proposal, obviously we'll walk you through that process. Every individual needs to understand understand it. And it's also not something to be ashamed of or, or you know, uh, embarrassed by, because there's obviously lots of Canadians are needing access to something like that. And if you get that information now, at least you have an ability to prepare yourself for what that looks like. I think not knowing and being afraid is only going to hold you back. So if you get the information now, it really helps you and your family decide what the plan is. Basically, come the fall, you'll have a better sense of what you all need to do. And at the risk of being unbelievably rude early on a Sunday morning, how ex- expensive are you? How much does, you're talking with people who are already in money problems, how, how expensive is it to sit down with a pro like yourself and have that terribly important organizational chat? And a meeting with a trustee, a free initial meeting is always offered. So I, I want to encourage folks, you do not have to pay to get advice about what to do with your debt. And with a licensed trustee, you're going to find someone who's going to be fair to you and give you all the options and, and not just steer you to one direction or another. It's not my job to try to convert you know, something into a file. It's honestly, we, we give you the advice that you need. It's a free initial meeting, and you'll leave um, knowing what, what your options are and what you can do at this time. Jennifer, always always a pleasure to have you on the program. Your calm voice in this storm is always indeed very welcome. Thanks for getting up early. We appreciate it having you back with us. Oh, thank you for having me. one bdo debt is a great place to start or debtsolutions.bdo.ca to get a hold of Jennifer online. 
Joined now by immigration and citizenship lawyer Gordon Maynard, who is with the Vancouver boutique law firm MKS Law, Maynard Kisher Stoichevich, uh, to talk about, uh, among other things, the Huawei case here in Vancouver. And we'll take a step back and look at immigration applications from around the world and whether or not uh, they're still being processed by the government of Canada. Mr. Maynard, Gordon, good morning. Sterling, how are you? Good morning to you. I'm fine, thank you. Let's talk first of all about uh, the Meng Wanzhou case, the Huawei case, as we had an important decision here in Vancouver a few days ago, Gordon, with a local judge deciding that the case to extradite this person to the United States can go forward. Her lawyers were hoping it would have been gassed on the spot and she would have walked out of the room a free person. Not going to happen. Why? Well, the first argument that was raised by her counsel uh, in the extradition hearing, remember, it's not a trial, it's an extradition hearing. Sure, right. Is that in extradition cases, the offense that's alleged in the United States also has to be a crime in Canada. Right. And they have to be equivalent offenses. And the, the argument by uh, Ms. Meng was that it wasn't the same, because the U.S. case is directly related to uh, damages arising from breach of the economic sanctions that the U.S. imposed against companies uh, engaging in trade in Iran. In Iran, right, yeah. And Canada didn't have those kinds of rules. So the defense was, it can't be the same offense. The same penalty wasn't exacted. And the judge separated the the, uh, sanctions issue from the offense of fraud, which was the complaint that the fraud occurred during bank dealings, bank negotiations. Right. And she said, that occurred. And you don't isolate it by saying that uh, the penalties were related to a, a penalty that doesn't exist in Canada. The offense was still there. Aha. So on that level, on that level, the case carries on. But there's more things to be decided still. Okay, and this is where it gets a little strange, and this is where it's really handy to have a lawyer explain this part, because the, in the, on the TV and in the papers, one party in this dispute has requested a referee. Now, where on earth does a referee come into the legal process? We all assume that the judge is the ref in most of these cases. Yes, and the, and the judge in this case has, has noted that, saying, gee, I've never had a referee before. Okay. But she's, willing, but she's certainly willing to look at it, uh, because the, the legal issues that arise now are abuse of process issues. These are very interesting arguments uh, about how Ms. Wang, how Ms. Meng was arrested uh, and dealt with by CBSA and by the RCMP when she arrived in Canada. Okay. And what happened to the evidence that was obtained during her examination at the airport? Um, so <clears throat> there's a lot of documents that have been asked for to dig into the background on this. And there's a debate as to whether or not the government has to turn over those documents. I see. So this has to be resolved. And what the, uh, because the issues are prolonging the hearing, what both the defense and the crown have suggested is that a referee be appointed simply to deal with the documentary issues and make decisions about what has to be disclosed and whatnot. So that the judge is free to still carry on with some of the arguments that are still being raised. And this puts the trial on two tracks, and it's expedient. So both sides are recommending it, and the judge is considering it, and justly so, I think. This case was supposed to be dealt with over the course of this year, not you know, not the whole year. Now it's looking like it's going to go beyond this year. I was just going to say. 2021. Right. So, and there are issues here that really put pressures on, on everybody. So is this likely, again, here's a, a, the defendant in this case, Ms. Mung, is a, a, an, a, she's a senior executive with a multinational global telecommunications organization with unlimited access to funds, so presumably her lawyers can go on for basically forever. How long can they actually drag this thing out on technical points? Uh, can it go on literally for years if they wanted to? Well, the extradition case, I think, will be done by early 2021 at the latest. Okay. But there can there can be appeals after that, so we're not sure. And there's also then a, a, a political uh, level of it. The justice minister has to make a decision on the actual extradition as well. So, yeah, it could drag on. 
And of course, we have the pressure of the two Michaels in custody. No right? kidding. Yeah, that that as that's a terrible pressure to add to it all. But is it possible, uh, from a legal perspective, that uh, that the court may arrive at one decision, Gordon, and politically, because you mentioned the political implications of this, and they are considerable, could it be that the court reaches one decision and the decision is overruled by the minister, who, for his own personal reasons, decides, nope, it's got to go this way, and that's that. It's a little more formal than that. Yes, you're on the right track. Uh, the judge in this case, uh, in the D.C. Supreme Court, can certainly decide that the extradition meets the requirements of the treaty. Okay. And they endorse the extradition right. order. Then the normal process is it then goes to a decision at the ministerial stage by the Minister of Justice. And the Extradition Act sets out uh, mandatory and discretionary grounds that the minister can consider, including whether or not the surrender of Ms. Ming to the U.S. would be unjust or oppressive in all the circumstances of the case. And this case certainly has elements to it that you know, give you know, reason for pause and great consideration. And it would be an opportunity for the, for the minister to intervene and not proceed with the extradition. Right. Right. And that's certainly, and, and I think most of us are aware of the fact that that is entirely possible. Let's change the subject for a second because I got to take advantage of your expertise. There was a piece in the Sun. Ian Mulgrew wrote a piece the other day. He writes on legal matters in the Vancouver Sun and pointed to uh, lawyers from a couple of areas of the law, Gordon, um, family lawyers and criminal lawyers, he's saying, were um, arguing that the Canadian court system, specifically here in BC, antiquated as it is, struggled struggling to uh, keep up with technology and struggling with the res- the constraints of COVID-19 have become pretty bogged down. It's not completely at a stop, but it's darn close in some cases. And they were lamenting the incredibly slow cases, particularly in criminal, where there is now a kind of a statute of limitations thing that they really have to worry about. On the immigration side of our legal system, Mr. Maynard, are there similar problems with uh, the volume? and the COVID uh, pandemic and people working from home and those restrictions, has the immigration side of our legal system also slowed down? Of course it has. Who hasn't slowed down? Uh, the impact is being felt by, by workers, by the impact of COVID-19 simply on international trade and travel. Sure. The airlines are shut down, the borders are shut down, not, not closed down, but... but severely restricted. Uh, People are out of business. Government has to deal with that. People are being reassigned. uh, Resources are being reassigned. So for all these, you can't have groups. How can you have a a trial, public trial and a hearing? You got to, you know, is it going to be like going to the grocery store? You put up plexiglass paintings and whatnot. What about the jury? Right. So, you know, all these things, hearings have stopped. There's still, everybody's still trying to do business and everybody's adjusting as best they can. But are there impacts? Well, yeah. I mean, the system we have has rules and and policies about, you know, how processes should go. They just weren't written with the pandemic in mind. Sure. So, you know, uh, the the points are well taken. And yes, I'm sure lots of minds and lots of eyes and lots of ears and lots of tongues are working away at trying to figure out how to make this work better. Yeah. You have, uh, as immigration lawyers, your firm has clients literally all over the world trying to come into Canada through the front door, observing all the legal protocols. Um, uh, It must be frustrating for many of them, especially trying so very hard to do it all very correctly. Oh, it's impossible to do it correctly right now. Um, I can tell you we get letters from the uh, department, the usual course of business letters saying that, you know, your client is not ready to be landed. You know, please come to the border or, 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 or please go get your biometrics done so that we can proceed with the case. Right. Um, even land, you know, like landing documents are coming that are time limits on them. You know, in this case, uh, uh, time limits are 30 days in some cases. And the people cannot, cannot get the events done. And that piece of paper is going to expire. And this is happening 
It is a pleasure to have Gordon Maynard, immigration lawyer with MKS Law, as a guest this time around. Lines are open, 604-280-9898. Gordon, last night on Global TV, we saw very, I want to zoom in on the Canada-U.S. situation for a couple of minutes here. We saw a TV wedding take place last night at Peace Arch Park. The I think she's an American, he's Canadian, the marriage commissioner was Canadian also, and the story basically went on and on about how important Peace Arch Park has become as a meeting place for people who are in disconnected relationships, one being Canadian, the other being American. And yet we also hear at the same time about flights from the United States coming into YVR. So exactly what is the status this fine-looking Sunday morning, Mr. Maynard, of Canada-U.S. border relations? It's certainly not as open as it used to be. That's for sure. And it's not nailed shut. I mean, it's in between. Uh, We can't close the border, absolutely. Uh, The trade relationship with the United States is just too vital. Of course. Uh, And so you you have to limit it to what the government is saying is essential travel. So the the, the simple way of putting it is that visitors can't come to Canada. I mean, no vacations, no recreation, no entertainment, all right? Just the border's closed for that. Right. Yet to be coming for an essential purpose. And essential purposes are defined under a number of headings. Uh, reunification of family members is still there. Obviously, if you're a Canadian citizen or a permanent resident and you want to come back to Canada, hope you can find a flight. And if you can, and your documents are in order, you can come, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, your spouse can come. Your children can come. Uh, it's a little bit tougher when you get down to the visitor level. Work permits and study permits, you know, not all work permits are being allowed into Canada. Right. You know? uh, and so, uh, and certainly not all study permits either. And processing of those documents has really taken a turn. I mean, you, you can put in applications, but whether or not they get approved, a lot depends on whether or not you're seen as being an essential service, for instance. Right. So, immigration applications are still on the go. But the border itself is is certainly down. Remember, there's only four international airports operating in Canada. Exactly, yep, and, and we're and one the of airports, them. We're one of them. Mm-hmm. And, the, and if you go down to the airport, you'll see it's not terribly busy, all right? So, and same with land crossings. Land crossings, there's still business, but like that wedding down at the border, probably because the guests weren't being allowed to come into Canada. I was just going to say, I, I don't and know. The, 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 the report didn't indicate where the couple was going to spend the evening after the ceremony, that cross-border ceremony took place in plain public view with lots of friends, appropriately distanced, of course, uh, uh, joining in the celebration. But the, the report did not say, well, they're off to Seattle or they're off to Vancouver or wherever for their honeymoon. Yeah. Presumably. Yeah, wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't, well, it might fly. I mean, if you're, if you're now married and you're the Canadian citizen, I'll bring your wife into Canada. That should be okay. Now, mind you, she'll have to go into quarantine. Right? Okay. So, certainly, the, don't forget, the federal quarantine requirements apply to everybody, with the exception of very exceptional, uh, exceptional services. So it's quite possible uh, that this, this, uh, this woman, this American woman, in, in, in yesterday's ceremony, uh, they, w- they would have gone to his place close by, somewhere nearby in Canada, and uh, the undertaking would be, and she would have to sign for it, too, that I'm going to now quarantine for the next 14 days. Nice honeymoon, some might say. Yeah, I mean, what else are you doing, honey? <laughs> well, I suppose so. So, but interestingly, once uh, once the marriage ceremony took place between an American and a presumably Canadian citizen, then that is a bit of a, a bit more than just a, a crack in the door. That actually opens the door for that American person to now married to a Canadian come in through the front door, right? Yeah, I mean, it would help if you had a marriage certificate in hand. They don't give those away right away. <laughs> right. I, I hope they. I hope they had an understanding border if that's the case. So now, in, in terms of those uh, essential uh, travel arrangements and and people coming up here from the states on the occasional flight, uh, do, as these people get off and they're interrogated by Canada Customs at YVR, are they asked quite specifically, Gordon, what is the purpose of your visit to Canada, and do you have? Qu- quarantine arrangements. That's all part of the process yeah. now, isn't it? Yep, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And what happens if you don't have uh, uh, an organized plan for the next 14 days, during which you're not going to be allowed to do anything in Canada except literally stay in your room? They have a room for you, don't they? Unless you want to turn around and go back home, 
uh, they can compel you to undergo quarantine in facilities of their arrangement. Right. Are you required to, if, you, if you're now going to be locked down, essentially, for 14 days at some Canadian place that they direct you to, are, is that going to cost you two weeks hotel stay tab? You got me. I, I don't know the details of the cost. I'm okay. sure it's not okay. going to be free. But, yeah. so, the, so, uh, so that what we saw in the case of the, the marriage on TV on the Suppertime News last night, that, that was a quite legitimate uh, circumstance. So family reunification from the United States is, is still possible. And obviously, since the government ordered us all around the planet to return home months ago, Canadians still trying to get back home uh, are perfectly capable and welcome to do so uh, through one of the four airports, right? Correct. And that's easier said. That's not as easily done as said. I mean, the, the airlines aren't running very well in a lot of countries, so you may have to do some moving around to get to Canada. Are our border people turning people away at the airport? Do you know, Gordon? That uh, you know, if if they say, "What's the purpose of your visit to Canada?" Well, you know, I thought I'd do a little fishing, you know, take a few pictures. Uh, is that uh, is that enough reason to go? Not this time. See you next time. That's right. So people are getting turned around. Yes, they are. Ah, and uh, do you get calls from people going, oops, I may have said something wrong at the airport. I'm still at the airport. What do I do now? Yeah, and we're dealing with those situations. And but for the most part, people are knowledgeable that you know, there's a pandemic going on. Borders are closed and there's a quarantine requirement. Right. You know, and airlines are, are directed to inform passengers of this when they come to the airport, and they're also directed not to let them on the plane unless they meet the criteria. Right. So you know, there's there's you know, significant effort made, and, and it shows. I mean, that's why the, the border traffic slowed down to a crawl as far as the airport's concerned. And presumably people who are going to attempt to cross the border will have done extensive homework and know exactly what the drill is. And if they don't, it's kind of their own fault, right? That's right. That's right. Interesting stuff. Uh, any final thoughts, Gordon, before I let you go in terms of current immigration? Is particularly if you have a case pending and are kind of twirling your thumbs going, is anybody even home? Yeah. No, really, that, that's a worry. You know, it, it's so hard to get information, current information in, in volume on specific cases. There's a lot of general information running around saying, hang tight, we'll work on it, you know. You uh, you put in your request, you put in your your, your information, you mm-hmm. put in your questions, and you do get answers. They're just not always specific. And they're saying, you know, keep your fingers crossed and hang on. We'll get to you. All right. So everybody's in the same slow moving line. Gordon Maynard, thank you very much for this. A pleasure to have you on the program. We must do this again sometime. You betcha. It's always a pleasure, Scott. Gordon Maynard is a partner in the firm Maynard Kisher Stoikovich in Vancouver, a boutique citizenship and immigration law firm. We learned earlier this past week that small businesses here in B.C. struggling to pay the rent this month will be protected from eviction by an emergency government order that encourages landlords to take advantage of a federal relief program. Here to talk about that and, of course, the much-discussed four-day work week is Laura Jones, the Executive Vice President and Chief Strategic Officer with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Back with us again. Good morning, Laura. Good morning, Sterling. It's good to have you back with us. Uh, And I know that I've learned from personal experience that Sundays are your best day in terms of having a chat because you got all the new figures from your ongoing surveys from across the country. And we'll take a look at the brand new numbers in a couple of minutes, if you don't mind, Laura. But first, a few words, if you would, please, because you're here in Vancouver. You're the vice president of a national company, but you're here in Vancouver. You're a B.C. person and you know B.C. business people well, some of whom might benefit from this order from Carol James and the B.C. government earlier this week. Talk to us about this ban on commercial evictions in B.C. Yeah, we got some good news uh, from the B.C. government uh, earlier uh, in the week in the form of a ban on commercial evictions. The the ban goes until the end of June, Mm -hmm. so it's not... You know, it's 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 not a never-ending ban, and that's what we had said was appropriate—a temporary um, ban on evictions. 
to um, just to get landlords and tenants to have a little bit of a some breathing space to figure out the rent um, situation. BC was one of the first provinces to do this, and I was hoping and did say earlier in the week that other provinces would follow suit, and sure enough, uh, Saskatchewan came out with uh, something very similar, and now Alberta is looking to pass legislation. So um, it is good news, but I want to be clear that it's, and it is going to protect some tenants and give them a little bit of breathing space to negotiate with their landlords, right. but it's not a panacea. Rent relief is still an absolute mess, um, and there are a number of reasons for that, but the, the rent relief piece of this, compared, if you look at it compared to the way Wage piece of it, two big bills that businesses often have, wages and rent. Um, and, you know, the wage piece of this is in much better shape than the rent piece. Yeah, and, and you were talking about the short-term nature of this uh, British Columbia program. Uh, the minister did talk about uh, the program being could be extended if indeed the federal relief program uh, goes beyond June, uh, so that it, it does have some flexibility in terms of length. But you're quite right, it is not designed to be uh, a very long-lasting program. Uh, some critics have pointed to the fact that uh, basically, uh, as was the case with the ban on residential tenants many months ago now, that this is permission for some to simply stop paying rent. Well, look, I think you're always going to have some bad actors and, you know, in every in every um, kind of situation and category, but... Um, our hope is, of course, that those are minimal, and that's what we're, you know, that's what we tend to be seeing. But of course, the the bad news is a good story, so um, there may be some of that. But I think that's, I think people are, including landlords and tenants, by and large, doing their best to try and figure this out and sort this out under very difficult circumstances because everyone's stressed about their bills. So it's not just the tenants that are worried about paying their bills. Of course, landlords are worried about their bills too and aren't getting um, uh, relief on. The other side. So they're not, for example, getting mortgage relief uh, for their payments. So it's it's challenging for everyone. Um, and you're also quite right to say that it's tied to the federal uh, program. And the other thing that I want to I want to point out here is that you have to qualify for CICRA um, to um, you have to qualify for that federal rent relief program right. in order to have this protection. And the bar for that program is very, very high. So a tenant has to be down 70 percent, an average of 70 percent in their revenues for April, May, and June combined. Mm-hmm. So an average of those three months has to be down 70%. That has its own challenge, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, but that's a very, very high bar for, for, for a business. And we're hearing from a lot of business owners that need the help, but don't qualify because that bar is too high. Because the numbers just, uh, they just don't coincide with this arbitrary uh, point that they've chosen in terms of drop of revenue, right? Yeah, sure. Imagine, you know, having half of your revenues uh, down or half of your paycheck, mm-hmm. your paycheck cut in half and being asked to still pay your your rent or your mortgage. I mean, that's the, the situation that a lot of businesses are finding themselves in. Most businesses have seen a fairly significant revenue drop. And, you know, 70%, at 70%, you're really, really hurting. Um, but you are, you're definitely feeling very, very stressed at even a, a 30% or a 20% revenue drop from your normal uh, situation. And I suppose, as is the case with the federal program on the wage subsidies too, Laura, what's the incentive in this case for the landlord of the commercial estate? Establishment to accept this program, given that they're going to take a 25% hit on what they should be taking in per month. I guess the, the reality of it being 75% of something is a whole lot better than 100% of nothing. You, you said it perfectly. 75% of something is a whole lot better than 100% of nothing. And the reality for, um, for many businesses is that revenue has gone down to almost nothing mm-hmm. for um, at least two of those months. So, you know, that, that really does um, help create an incentive. But the other thing is many landlords stepped up earlier than th- this program was only available relatively recently. It was yeah. very late. Rent relief was very late to the party here. Mm-hmm. And so um, for landlords that had already sorted something out with their tenants, this will give them something, something back because many had already given, um, you know, some, some discounts. So, so there's an incentive to apply there. But one of the worrying things we're hearing is the application and CMHC is saying this itself. The applications are taking two weeks and then another five to seven days to actually get the money flowing. So, you know, by that time, 
we're going to be, you know, people are going to be worried about July. Yes. And so I, you know, again, I continue to say that rent relief is a, 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 a giant mess that needs a big, you know, cleanup on aisle four. Like we really need to, we really need to um, fix some of these problems. And the the commercial protect, eviction protection is one piece of that, but it still leaves a giant mess that that needs to be addressed. And what's the most salient point, Laura, that really needs to be addressed most quickly? I think the the thing that needs to be addressed quickly is getting money directly in the hands of tenants, um, because right now um, it, the, the money goes to the landlord, right. and they may not be able to change the program. It's like the program itself wor- is working for some, and they may not be able to do it through the rent relief program. But what they could do is expand the SIBA um, program. That's the emergency um, business account where there's a forgivable portion right now. Now it's a $40,000 interest-free loan with right. a $10,000 forgivable. That's been really helpful for a lot of businesses trying to pay their, their bills. So if you could expand that to twenty dollars or $30,000 forgivable and a $60,000 uh, loan, given the, that this is going on longer than anyone imagined, then that puts money straight in the hands of, of the, the tenants themselves, and they can figure out rent and their other bills. So that's what we continue to um, push for. But the other piece of that loan is that there are certain businesses that were never eligible. So think of your sole proprietor that had a didn't have a business bank account. Right. They were left out of those forgivable loans. And the government changed that, which is great. Weeks ago, they announced that, that all kinds of categories, if you pay in dividends, if you have contract workers, so think about your hair salons, that you would be eligible um, for this. And that was you know, seen as fantastic news, but it's been super, super slow coming. Right. So we thought two weeks ago, we were telling our members that, yeah, we think it's going to be this week. Uh, we thought Then we thought, no, it's a delay. It was going to be last week. Um, so we're really, really hoping that that uh, is out the door uh, this week because it, it's desperately needed relief. Laura Jones is back with us on this weekend. Laura is the Executive Vice President and Chief Strategic Officer with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And Laura, I mentioned this earlier. It's uh, We've learned by experience that having you on the program on a Sunday is just top of the pops because you always have the very latest new survey numbers available to you on Sunday morning. So let's talk about what business owners and operators across Canada are saying about themselves. I used a few adjectives uh, going into the break. Only one was positive. There were a lot of a lot of negatives. Confusion was still up there on the list. Are you still hearing that? Oh yeah, I mean confusion, stress because there's an absolute alphabet soup of of different government programs right. that you have to wade through to see whether you're. You know, am I eligible? Does this work for me? Do I need, you know, um, well, most people know if they need it or not, but um, that's a real challenge. And we're doing actually weekly webinars with small businesses where we're helping to sort of say what's new this week and answer as many questions as we can. And I can tell you there's just a tsunami of questions um, around all the government programs and how they work. And, you know, part of it is that they often get announced before there's any detail. And then the details start trickling out and that, that in and of itself is just a, a big, big challenge. So you're worried about your business, but on top of that, you're worried about and how to get back to making sales. But on top of that, you're worried about, okay, how do I access you know, some money to bridge me um, through this uh, crisis? And I suppose a lot of the, the inquiries that you get nationally are simply, how do I actually go through the process of making the wheels turn? How do I get into the game? Because admission into the programs is not automatic necessarily, is it? No, it's not automatic. And in some cases, like if you look at the wage subsidy um, program, there's some complicated um, calculations that need to be done uh, for businesses. There's also, you know, we get a lot of questions like, you know, just do I qualify, you know, for, for example, for the SIBA loan, you know, I pay my employees in dividends. What, is that, what does that mean for my qualification? And then, you know, so there's the, the sort of the big 30,000 foot announcement that goes out um, from governments, but then there's layers and layers and layers of details because every situation is a bit different. And so, you know, and often we're asking government questions that they haven't even thought of yet. Sure. And so then they have to go back and think about it and come back and, and, and give us the answer. So it's, you know, it's a challenging time for sure. And I, I 
you know, I'm, I am some, somewhat sympathetic. I probably sound critical, but I'm, I'm certainly somewhat sympathetic of, of, you know, those in government who are trying to design these programs in record times and, and think about all these scenarios. But it's a big challenge for everyone, I guess, is the point. Yeah, looking at some of the, the specific categories that you asked of your uh, members, I'm behind in major bill payments like rent, credit cards, major suppliers. 35% of business owners responding to the affirmative there. Uh, BC being BC business people being in the middle of that pack, but people in the hospitality industry, Laura, being at the very top of the list. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, people are, and, and you know, to have a third of businesses behind on major payments, these aren't the small payments, yeah. but, but the big payments, again, just shows you how stressed um, that sector, um, the, the small business uh, sector um, really is. And many of them are paying some of those bills, but let's not forget, even if you're not behind, we also have survey results saying, how are you paying your bills? Well, you're dipping into your personal savings, That's right. your retirement savings, mm-hmm. you're putting it on your credit card, you're borrowing from friends and family. So, you know, we also came out with a release this week saying that the average uh, debt that had been taken on for a small business as a result of this is $150,000. Wow. Um, I mean, that's, and you know, a lot of businesses are very, very worried about, I'm looking at the comments, you're quite right, you're smart to have me on on Sunday morning, because I'm looking at the com. I'm, you know, looking at the survey that, that went out on Friday night, yeah. and I'm looking at the comments, and there are a lot of people talking about how worried they are, you know, not just about 2020, but about 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because I think the drag on this is going to be high. And you, you talked about those words, the stress, the anxiety, and, you know, I I can't I can't say this strongly enough that this is just on an just on an on a financial level it's extremely stressful but on an emotional level and of course the two are related mm-hmm. um, this is very very difficult for business owners and as reopening you know continues and we saw in our survey there was a bit of a spike in the last week yep. to, you know when you feel that when you go out and you see you know there's more oh another one of my favorite businesses is open which is great. But they're going to put a brave face on it for you when you come in. They're not going to be telling you how difficult things are. Um, but I just uh, hope that um, customers out there continue to be supportive um, financially, obviously opening their wallets and, and shopping, but also just emotionally and saying, you know, good job to those business owners who I think have done a remarkable job of um, – you know, closing when they needed to close and reopening thoughtfully and carefully. And there are a lot of challenges with reopening, too, that we're hearing about with, you know, customers, maybe some some of them taking it quite seriously, but others may be a little bit even mad at the business owner for, for, for all the cleaning and the disinfectant and the, and the protocols. Because, of course, people are different parts on the spectrum in terms of how seriously they take the health implication. And that can be really difficult as a business owner uh, to deal with with their customers. Absolutely. Only a minute left. Unfair to have uh, such a short amount of time to address the much discussed notion of the four-day work week. What do you think? Oh, (laughs) gosh. Um, You know, I think that employees and employers are pretty good at at navigating, you know, the, the relationship. And this COVID crisis has kind of, I think, launched us into a whole new era of, you know, flexibility with, um, for some jobs, doesn't work for all, but for some, you know, whole new openness to working from home. And um, in many cases, seeing that productivity can be as high, if not higher, for working from home. But in terms of mandating a four-day work week, I think there's a lot of um, things about that that could be um, extremely uh, problematic. And so uh, for for business. And so I, I think it's often better to leave these things between the employer and the, and the employee to, to sort out. And I, well, I, I imagine we're a long ways from having a mandated four-day work week. I agree with that. Thanks so much for this, Laura. We'll talk again on a Sunday morning since it is your very best day. We do appreciate your time today. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me on. Always a pleasure. Laura Jones is Executive Vice President, Chief Strategic Officer with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business.